HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Big Green Egg, the world's largest producer of ceramic charcoal grills, and also by Springer Mountain Farms, over 300 family farms raising birds in Georgia's Blue Ridge Mountains. Learn more at BigGreenEgg.com and SpringerMountainFarms.com. Carrie Diamond, and I'm with Radio Cherry Bomb, and we are live from the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. We are here at the Heritage Radio Network (laughs) TP extravaganza, sponsored by Breville, I guess. Sponsored by Big Green Egg. And Spring Mountain Farms. This is live. This is live. They'll edit all that out. Um, we are so happy to be here. Charleston is one of our favorite. The guests are laughing at, the, at me already. I've lost complete control of the show. Uh, we are. I know. Okay. It's rain it in, Carrie. Rain I, it in. I'm blaming everything on Ruth Reichel. We were just at a really lovely luncheon called Stories from Her Kitchen, and it was a celebration of all these wonderful chefs, including Vivian Howard and Ashley Christensen two good friends of Cherry Bomb. And I heard Ruth, you, I think you were talking to yourself because you weren't talking to me necessarily. And Ruth said, I'm just going to drink. I'm in Charleston. So I heard Ruth say that. And I'm like, well, if Ruth Reichel is going to drink, I'm going to drink. And then about a glass and a half later, I started crying. And I was like, maybe I shouldn't drink. So anyway. But it was too late. Oh, no. <laughs> it was too late, exactly. So, long story short, uh, we are here doing a special episode of Radio Cherry Bomb with three of our favorite ladies who've all been in the magazine. To my right, which you can't see, but it is to my right, we have Ruth Reichel, the editor, the writer, the icon. Uh, next to Ruth is Ellen Bennett. She is the founder of Headley & Bennett, the apron company based outside Los Angeles with, as I like to say, Made in America products. Somebody does make their products in America, and it's Ellen. And Ellen made the official apron for the Charleston Wine and Food Festival, so you should check out her apron. And then next to Ellen, we have Mashama Bailey, who I have not seen in two years. Two years. Since she did the most wonderful luncheon at the Southern Foodways Alliance Symposium in Oxford, Mississippi. 
Uh, Mishama is the executive chef of The Gray in Savannah. I have not had the pleasure of eating there yet, but... Oh, we're not too far away, so... No. But I've been, I've been cheering for you from afar, despite not having been there yet. So I'm um, really thrilled to have these three women. We are in Charleston, and uh, we've already come to decide that the, the rule of this festival is to just go with the flow. So yeah. I have no idea what we're going to talk about, but we're going to figure it out. But because, we're here, and we're flowing. <laughs> because these are three really, really wonderful women. Um, Ruth is probably tired of talking a little, so maybe we'll start with Mashama. <laughs> Got that right. She's just nodding And her make head. Mishama talk a little bit. Um, Mishama, when did The Gray open? Uh, the Gray opened December 2014. So two years-ish. And how's it going? It's, it's still there. <laughs> it, it hasn't, hasn't burnt down. It hasn't so burnt good. down. It almost burnt down one morning, but it hasn't burnt down yet. It's still there. It's going good. It's going really good. Yeah. Now, you were working at the Prune, at uh-huh. Prune Restaurant in New York City yes. under Chef Gabrielle Hamilton, yes. who we all know and love. I would imagine it's a little different working in this tiny, tiny shoebox of a restaurant in New York City for Gabrielle to running your own kitchen in Savannah in a former Greyhound bus depot. Yeah, so there's this huge learning curve there, which I'm still trying to catch up on. I go from really an intimate space where you come in and you're sitting down and you're knocking knees, you know, with your love. And then it's like this grand bus station. So there's a huge, uh, there's a lot to learn. And I was a sous chef there, so I wasn't um, an executive chef yet. So this is sort of the first of, of everything. How's, how, how are the responsibilities different for you? Um, you have all the responsibility. Where the chef, sous chef, you have some of the responsibility. Where the chef, you have all of it. So, yeah. <laughs> what would you say is the best habit you picked up from Gabrielle? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think being thorough, finishing things. Uh, I wasn't, I, you know, you... You have to finish, and you have to sort of circle back and make sure it's done. What is the worst habit you picked up from Gabrielle? <laughs> um, I think um, probably that knowing everything's going to kind of work out, you know, just kind of flying by the seat of my pants a little bit. She's very, very organized, and I think I'm organized in my brain. But, um, I th- you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes on, I think, and we're just kind of, like, ready to catch what... We're ready to catch what falls. So. so for people who haven't been to the Gray, tell us a little bit about the food you make down there. The food I make... Sorry. <laughs> I wasn't sure if you needed to look at a menu and just remind yourself or your phone was your phone ringing that's my sous chef sorry I've been trying to call him Speaking all morning of sous chef, she's on the line <laughs> um, so the food that we we uh, we serve is sort of I kind of trip over the words a little bit sometimes because I think it's a lot of everything I'm, I'm born and raised in New York City I'm heavily influenced by the whole entire city. Uh, grew up in a, in a southern black household, so that was sort of my everyday. But my mom went to school, so on Fridays we would have soup, you know, Campbell's soup and grilled cheese sandwiches. And um, being in the South, you're heavily influenced by it, so I, I would say it's a restaurant in the South, a southern, you know, that focuses on uh, local southern ingredients. 
But if I had to if I had to pick what it was, I would say it's Mediterranean. I would say it's a little Italian, and it's a little African too. Great. How how is the African influence reflected uh, spices, in your menu? I think spices and also um, ingredients. Uh, yeah, spices and ingredients, and a little bit, you know, some techniques. But I've never been to you know I've been to South Africa, but I've never been to uh, Northern Africa. Never been to Senegal. So and I, but I read a lot about it, and I think that's uh, where I want to go next. To you know, bring it all back home. You need to plan that trip. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. So what brings you here to Charleston? Uh, Food and Wine Festival. They invited me. Uh, Jeremiah Bacon, who um, I, really, I really met once uh, two years ago in passing. We were, at the, we were at the Miami Food and Wine Festival, and he just was super sweet to me. And um, he called me up a couple of months ago and asked me to do a signature dinner with him. And I was like, uh, yeah. So uh, he, he was the one who sort of opened the door. And Todd Richards, I'm doing a breakfast with him. And the SFA called me to do um, you know, a uh, dinner with them last night honoring um, a woman who owns the Working Man's Cafe. So it was, it's, I'm just hanging. Are you here here all weekend? I am here all weekend. Great. Where can people find you the rest of the weekend? Uh, Tonight, probably with a glass of wine in my hand, anywhere on King Street. And uh, tomorrow I'll be at the Macintosh. And I don't know where I'm going to be at on Sunday, honestly. I just have to look at where this event is. I thought it was here in the Culinary Village, but it's not. So I got to figure that out. More of just going with the flow. Going with the flow. Um, want to give another shout out to our sponsors of the uh, Heritage Radio Network TP, Springer Mountain Farms Chicken and Big Green Egg. Thank you very much for supporting independent radio. You guys, you do. I love Big Green Egg. Okay. Yeah. Just let it be known. That is a great segue, Ellen. Do you have a Big Green Egg at your office, which is gigantic, or at home? I wish I had a Big Green Egg at home and at my office, and I have none. But you just like it. I love them. You can smoke food in there, and it's delicious, and it makes your meat all tender. I mean, I'm like a walking ambassador. I think they're right around the corner, and you should probably do a collaboration like, apron, apron lady in the here. Come visit me after the show. In the signature <laughs> green, I see it happening right now. So, Ellen, tell us what brings you to Charleston. Well, first of all, Charleston is amazing and has incredible food, and everyone's so damn nice. Everywhere you go, people are just like, so great to see you, and they actually mean it. That's amazing. I mean, I'm from L.A., then not everybody means it when you're in L.A. I'm serious. Um, and you're, But you're always in your cars. How, do you, how could you even true, say It's true, exactly. Hi. We're just staring each other down in, in each other's cars giving each other the bad looks um no i love charleston because everything's so colorful every single house has a different color every door has a different color and something that triggered me when we were doing our talk a second ago was like what get what gets you inspired for me when i'm in other cities i'm looking at the colors and the food and the fruit and the like all the produce and then i go home and i'm like oh that pink on that radish would look so good on the straps and i'm thinking of color ways when i'm out on my adventures so is that, how, that. is that how your design process begins? Do you start with the color? Yeah. yeah I'm all about the color, and I, I'm really into tonal colors right now. So 
finding lots of different textures. So I'll take like a solid pink and then a red and then a green. Actually, my nails are three different colors of red, but then I'm wearing a different color dress that's also red, but with patent leather red shoes. So I like layers of the same thing. One thing my chef used to always do is we do crazy dishes with, let's say, carrots. And he'd be like, we are going to puree the carrots and we're going to dry the carrots and we're going to smoke the carrots. And you'd end up with like 10 different kinds of carrots on your dish. And it was amazing and delicious. And I, it always sort of stuck with me. Layers of the same thing are not the same thing. Like they're very different. So you, as you just alluded to, made the transition from the kitchen to apparel, yeah. which not everyone does. Why did you decide, I've had it with kitchens, my life's dream is to make aprons? I, I didn't decide. It was sort of life decided for me. Um, and I just loved talking to a chef and understanding how the chef worked because I had the same mentality, but then also seeing beyond what he could see and adding my own design element to the mix. It was very fun for me to pluck that out of his head and be like, oh, these are the colors of your restaurant. It's blue and it's green and it's yellow. And if we incorporate that into the apron on a really nice base, we can make something that's beautiful. And so we'd make this like amazing apron baby together. And I don't think that they had been able to do that with somebody before. And it was new and different and I loved it and I kept doing it over and over on my on my free time. I would actually take apron meetings during staff meal in my car and I would cut it off when I needed to go back and clock in. And I'd be like, well gentlemen, it was great speaking to you today. You know I will my 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 team will be in touch with you. Um, I need to leave now. I have another meeting and then I would hang up and then run inside and clock back into Providence. Like that was that was how it started. <laughs> you, you, you have earned a reputation as being the queen of the hustle. But what was wrong with traditional aprons that you... I mean, we've, we've all worn aprons forever. What was it about aprons that you thought, I can do this better? Well, to, to be perfectly honest, I mean, I was making $10 an hour as a line cook. And I was like, my ass was being handed to me every night. And my own self-esteem and morale was in the pits and I wanted to and I looked around at my team and I saw the same and everybody male female they looked bad and they felt bad about it but we were making amazing food at the same time and there was like this humongous delta between us and I thought what if we could bridge that together and make yourself look and feel good kind of like an athlete when he goes running you have an amazing outfit on and you look and feel like a champion so what if we do that for the kitchen, too, and bring everybody's morale up so that you can do a better job? And so now when I see cooks or chefs wearing my aprons, it's really exciting because you do see them with their head held up just a little bit higher. And they're like, look at me. And they got their hands on their hips. <laughs> you kind of have your own cult, and your cult even has a name. It's the Apron Squad, right? Yeah. And I, I literally think you have spent the past few years just going around this country convincing people by just sheer force of personality to wear those aprons because all overnight I feel like everyone knows who you are everyone is wearing your aprons it's not like you're a big company and you're paying people to wear your aprons they're just wearing them because they like them well, I, I think that everybody sort of innately wanted the same thing. And there was just, I appeared and I said, here, this is the, this is the way we can do it. But it's a beautiful community. The food world mm -hmm. is amazing. And it when is. they see something that they like, they're a part of it. And we definitely, I, I would say we stand for like the underdog hustler. We were like, we didn't have the means, but we figured it out. And I think a lot of people relate to that. And, and I love it because it's just like, it's a crew now. And it's, it's a whole squad, like you said, the apron squad. And we won't put Michelle on the spot, but if Mishama's not wearing Headley and Bennett aprons just yet, 
She will be by Monday. <laughs> right? Exactly. Ellen, one more apron-specific like question. swag bags. <laughs> Why? You could have made your aprons anywhere. Why did you decide to make them in Los Angeles? Well, it started out because I got an order and I needed to make them immediately and it was nearby and that was how I could figure it out. Um, and then as, as the company grew, we had opportunities to do it elsewhere and we just stuck with it. We just figured out a way. And, you know, I, I'm also half Mexican, so I've always wanted to make aprons in Mexico too. So that's like another layer of Headley and Bennett that I'm in that, going that direction. But I'm just very excited that I can directly impact our economy and every restaurant that's in the U.S. is directly impacting the economy. And I think that's so badass. You're like, I'm doing my part. I hired someone and that person has a family and now they can eat because of this company. Like, that's the bigger dream. You know, it's it's aprons, but it's so much more than that. It's like we're supporting people and that's really cool. Absolutely. I'm going to give one more shout-out and thank you, even though they're not a sponsor. Maybe they'll sponsor next year. Uh, Breville, thank you for my coffee. The Breville folks are here uh, talking up their Oracle coffee machine, which is fabulous, and it would be even more fabulous if they were a sponsor. Go, so Breville! We're going to work on Woo! Breville and get Breville to sponsor this next time. But uh, this make is sure a you stop by radio and say show. hi. <laughs> we're, slinging, we're slinging aprons here. We're slinging Breville. They're not even a sponsor. <laughs> Indie, indie radio. Like Ellen said, it's all about the hustle. Indie radio, it's a tough business these days. But um, <laughs> we are very privileged, lucky, all of those things, to have Ruth, Re Ruth Reichel with us today. Ruth Reichel um, kind of needs no introduction at all. She was the amazing editor of Gourmet Magazine for 10 years. For 10 years, you have probably read... So many of her books, Garlic and Sapphires, so many of them I just love. Um, Ruth, what brings you to Charleston? I love Charleston, and they invited me, so here I am. Do you remember when you first came to Charleston? Is this not on? Oh, is this on? Is that better? Yes. Should we okay. start over? Ruth, Ruth, what brings you to Charleston? I love Charleston, and they invited me. I'm easy. You know, anytime you want to invite me to Charleston, I'll come. <laughs> when was the first time you came to Charleston? Um, probably 22 years ago. Um, we This is kind of the easiest, cool place to come from New York City. And so in, like, deepest winter, we would come and have spring in Charleston. And it's a great place. To, my, my son was little, and it's a great place to be with a kid there's lots of stuff to do and we would you know the kids could it's safe and the kids could wander around by themselves and the food was great and I kind of always thought of this as uh, New Orleans with vegetables <laughs> you know I mean the first time I went to New Orleans I thought the food was great and after a week there I yearned for something green <laughs> and I mean this is a long time ago but and then I came here, and it was like, oh, my God, it's, it's really similar. They've got all the same influences, all the same influences of food here. And they've got you know, all this great local ingredients, and they're on the sea. And, uh, but they also like vegetables. Not to lump Charleston into the south, but it's really remarkable, the culinary renaissance, culinary awakening that's, that's gone on in the south. When you were editing Gourmet... What was the attitude toward food down south? You know, I, 
we always love food down south, but I, I really think that you can really um, date the new interest in southern food to Paul Prudhomme. And, you know, I, I think it's hard for people who weren't around at the time to remember what a ferment there was. I mean, there was a rage for Cajun food, which people hadn't really experienced outside of Louisiana. And when Paul brought his, he took his whole restaurant on the road, and he came to San Francisco. I mean, he closed K. Paul's and brought the entire staff, rented a restaurant in San Francisco, and people stood in line for 14 hours to go eat the food. And, you know, he popularized um, black and redfish to the point that redfish almost became extinct. And, and it was the beginning of an understanding, not just that Southern food was good, but that we have regional food in America. And, you know, suddenly people were beginning to understand that, you know, there was great food there in Cajun country that was very unique but that also different areas of the South had really unique local cuisines. And then we started looking at the Pacific Northwest. And it was, we went from being a country that was kind of ashamed of our food, oh, American food is just hamburgers and hot dogs, to American food, look at what we've got here. And all these, you know, these cultures have come and created all kinds of new cuisines. And, um, and the South is probably always been the best of that because it's it's the biggest melting pot for cuisine. I mean, you had you know, the people coming from up north, you had the African Americans coming, um, you had Indian people, you, I mean you, you know, French you know, in, in French came, you had Mexican influence, you had this, this amazing confluence of um, different cuisines that came together and good ingredients and a long growing season and so you know the south is it's blessed for food I think people are finally just starting to realize that though that the south is very much like Italy I mean people now know that Italy is made up of all these different regions and it's not just meatballs and lasagna but you've got regional specialties and now I feel like Chinese cuisine is going through that somewhat in America forever. It's just been Chinese food, but now we're understanding that if it's from Shanghai, it's from the north, it's from you know all over the place. It's a very different type of food. But the the, the difference with Chinese food is that the reason Chinese food changed is because immigration laws changed, and for the longest time there was no authentic. I mean, the Asian Exclusion Act of the 1890s essentially meant that we had no authentic Chinese food in this country until the G.I. Bride Act of 1945 and then the Hart Cellar Act in 66. And every time the law changed, you saw a new wave of Chinese food coming in. So that wasn't just our rediscovering something that was here. It was an actual change. I think with Southern food, it's a rediscovery of something that's always been here. Michelle, oh, Michelle, ma. <laughs> yes. you, I know we yes. talked about a dish uh, that you contributed to our cookbook that was inspired by, was it your grandmother and salted cod? Yes, um, salted flounder. Salted flounder. Um, it was, so my grandmother 
one of the best dishes she's made. Um, my um, paternal grandmother, she made um, cod fritters. And honestly, I remember her making them when I was an adult. I don't remember her making them when I was a child. And I think with her, she grew tired of food. She loved to entertain, but she often grew tired of sort of like um, the, the process of, of having um, long cooking times and long preparations. She was very good at roasting meat, and now that I've gotten older, that's, it's because you can like set it and forget it, right? You can like, you know, season it, put it away, put it in the oven, it's one, two, three. So these cod fritters she made, they were outstanding. She soaked the cod, um, she soaked the salt cod, she riced the potato, she had a little bit of hot sauce to it. It was like super delicious. So um, in Savannah, you know, flounder is sort of like the fish of the city, I guess. Like every restaurant, every purveyor uh, really sort of tries to sell you flounder, really. And so you, it's to the point where you're just like, I know every single place here has flounder and I just don't want to use flounder. But it's fresh and it's readily available. So I thought, well, what could I do with it that's a little different and that you won't necessarily see it in other restaurants. So I decided to salt it. So salted, cured it for a while, dried it out, and then rehydrated and cooked it just like my grandmother cooked it. But instead of frying it, I served it on toast, and it was sweet potato fingerling season, so, you know, just made it a little fancy. Um, now, you're making it sound really easy when wow. it's, it's a fairly elaborate dish. It's, a, it's you pretty salt elaborate. salt it for several days. We salt it for several days. Like, how many days are we talking here? Yeah, about four. Four yeah. days? So salt it, you cover it in salt, you salt it for four days, and so, then you uh, can... Whole fish? No, you fillet it. Fillet, okay. We want to know. Salt fillet. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, you salt it for several days, and then you can either dry it out like that, or you can rinse it from the salt. Um and soak it in some milk. Soak it in water for a little bit wow. and then soak it in a little bit of milk and pull all the salt out. You kind of have to work it, you know, because... And the reason... And I, I thought, well, why would you salt this fish and then rinse all the salt out? But it actually changes the texture of it. You know, the texture becomes uh, really... Con the flavor becomes really concentrated. The texture almost becomes um, stringy in a way that um, fish normally isn't and then we just sort of rehydrated with a little bit of sour cream a little mayonnaise some herbs um, some sweet potatoes you poach and, it in milk mm -hmm, you poach you it cut, in milk you cut the sweet potatoes into these beautiful yeah. cubes this was a long process when I yes. gave you the recipe it was like what <laughs> what but it's, it's wonder so much work goes into it and it's so wonderful it's so it can, you can do it ahead of time it's perfect for a dinner party because you can make it you know days in advance and you don't have to worry about it but you salt you um you cook it in milk. You f once it's done, you flake it from the milk, and then you add some sweet potato, small diced sweet potato. You serve it on charred bread, which uh, with a little bit of olive oil. And my dad came. Uh, my dad and my parents are like my number one fans. Like I don't think I think they like me. I don't think they ever thought that this would happen. You know, I, I think it was sort of like. 
oh, okay, she cooks. That's great. <laughs> and then it was like, oh, wait, you actually have a restaurant. Wow, okay. And then to see the restaurant, they're super surprised. I think we're all surprised. And um, so he came to the restaurant and he ate this toast. And he was like, it's the best thing. It's just the best thing. And so it was really inspired by my grandma. So. Have you salted other fish? Um, no, but um, mullet, I've brined mullet before. Um, and we just had a, a fried mullet dish on the menu. And uh, we brine it for, we don't brine it for, we, don't, we try to brine it for less than a day. And it changes the texture. It pulls a lot of the fat out of mullet, like that, because mullet can remind you of a bluefish that's super oily. Right. It pulls a lot of that fat out, and it just um, lightens up the flavor a little bit, but also um, firms up the texture. It's awesome, like that. I bet you're going to start a trend for salt. You know, there, there's all this preserving now. Yeah, but that's true. you know, I mean, salted codfish. I mean. It it's was a staple oldest, of yeah. so many cultures, mm-hmm. yeah. and it's it's the only salted fish you see. But it's kind of crazy. Can, why any, not do other fish? I yeah. think you can salt any. I think you can salt anything, um, just about. And I'm sure fish is not. There's no difference. This is how they preserved it. You go and you catch all these fish, and what are you going to do with it? What right. do you do with it? You have to. You either dry it out in the sun. You you put it in some oil. You. You, you salt it you for a year and catch it and make fish sauce. And then exactly. pour some milk on it exactly. and Bob's your uncle. <laughs> Down the hatch. So, Ellen, you mentioned you're of Mexican descent. What are some culinary traditions that in I your family up. that reflect that? Oh, gosh. Oh, I grew up making tamales in my grandma's kitchen, like sitting on the counter because I was too short to actually get into the big giant tamale pot, which is more like a vat. Um, so I grew up making a lot of tamales and... My mom uh, doesn't know how to cook. She doesn't cook at all. So I learned everything from my my Mexican grandma. And um, I would just spend, I remember, so much time in that kitchen trying to figure out what everybody was making because there were so many chilies everywhere and spices and giant chunks of garlic hanging off the side that they would just rip a chunk off and rip a chunk of a chili off and throw it in the pot throw some beans in there and then you'd have the most delicious beans you'd ever have and every meal we ate it with a stack of tortillas that were from the corner tortilla place where you would go and it'd be like a giant machine with masa being ground up and you'd wait in line with all the neighborhood kids that would get sent out to get tortillas for dinner and you'd be in line and you know they'd wrap up the tortillas and they were freshly made and then you'd take them home and I just remember you could roll them in your hand they were so fresh and soft you just roll them and you dip them and then you had a big wheel of fresh queso fresco that they would wrap in a banana plantain and also sell you at the Mexican farmer's market, which was very not posh at all. And uh, so you'd have your beans, your queso fresco, your tortillas, and then a two liter jug of Coca-Cola that was filled in a refillable bottle. So it wasn't like Coke you bought at the store. You would take it to the local corner store. They would fill it up with new Coca-Cola and you would take it back. It was very reusable. It was, it was such a very uh, simple, humble way to eat. And that was my life in the summer. And then I'd go home to L.A. and it was like, you know, American public school. But my God, let me tell you, I loved my times in Mexico. I was like, this is the life. Beans and cheese and my friends playing soccer in the streets. Like, that's where I just loved Mexican culture forever. And I still do. It's amazing. 
And Ruth, you have made a, a long career now out of sort of your anti-culinary background. Uh, yes. Um, my mother was the world's worst cook. and um, uh, Was the, she really, Ruth? Oh, she really was. So the first story in my first book is about my mother. My brother comes home and says he's gotten engaged. And my mother decides to give an engagement party for him. And this party gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And she's like 150 people, and she does all the cooking. And 26 people ended up in the hospital with food poisoning. No. Oh my gosh. And that was classic in my house. 26. And that's 20, and that's so, enough to get you shut down. Yes. Um, and, you know, my mother had an iron stomach, and the, my earliest memories are watching my mother go through the refrigerator, scraping the blue stuff off the top, and saying, Little mold never hurt anyone. <laughs> oh my gosh! So I kind of grew. I mean, I nobody was ever better trained to be a restaurant critic. I mean, <laughs> at the age of two, I knew that what I should do when my mother served something, I would take a tiny little bite, and and I still do this with my food. Yeah, you know, and and to see if it was trying to see if there's mildew in there, to see if it was going to kill me or not. You know. Uh, and I started cooking. I mean, the, the cover of Tender at the Bone is a picture of me cooking at seven. And you can wow. see that I, this is not a little child's game. I mean, I'm seriously cooking. And I just pushed my mother away from the stove at a very early age and thought, if I'm going to survive... i got to take over. i got to take over. Oh, wow. That's amazing. So if you made your deadline, I believe you just turned in your next book. Did you turn it in? I did turn it in, yes. Good job! Uh, Congratulations. (laughs) All the Ruth fans are very excited that there is a new Ruth book in the works. Tell us about It's about about as exciting as a new Harry Potter book coming out. Oh, yeah, right. Like, is there a (laughs) pre-order? Where do we sign up? Absolutely. (laughs) That's my second one of the show. I want to roll. At the moment, the title of this book is Aimed at the Heart, the Gourmet Memoir. Whoa. And it's Aimed about... at the heart. Okay. Yeah, the, the title comes from when the author of The Jungle discovered that he, what he had wanted to do was bring up the whole idea of how badly the workers in the meat packing plants were being treated. And instead, what happened was that people were so outraged by what was happening in those plants that the first food and drug laws were enacted. And he said, I aimed at their hearts and hit them in the stomach. Oh, nice. So tell, what can you tell us about well, the book? I mean, it's, it, the book is about the, the, my 10 years at Gourmet, which was, um, you know, I mean, I, I'd been a newspaper writer my whole life. Um, I literally did not know that people made that kind of money or live those kind of lives. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, my, my husband and I were both journalists. Very hard for journalists with a kid to um, make it in New York. And suddenly I walk into this world of unbelievable privilege. I mean, there are editors at Condé Nast who have literally never been on the subway. Um, wow. I mean, who would who would take a car to go one block because they didn't even know that it was only a block away. And I had um, a clothing allowance, a driver. Uh, they paid for everything. You know, hair and makeup people would show up at your house and 
first thing in the morning. So it's about that, which is, you know, like, I mean, I felt like Cinderella walking into this world. But on top of that, it's about, I mean, that's, that's all silly stuff. So part of it is how do you hold on to yourself? How, how do you not turn into one of those monsters? Right. Um, because people who live with that kind of privilege, you get used to it and it's not a good thing for you. So part of it is that. And the other part is that the other side of the Condé Nast that I worked in was Cy Newhouse absolutely believed that people would pay for quality and that if you got the best writers and the best photographers and put out really quality magazines, people would pay for it. And that world is gone. But for 10 years, they really let me do hire great writers, you know, David Foster Wallace writing in a food magazine. And um, it's like, how big can you think? How, how, how much imagination can you bring to this? And so it's kind of a lament for a world, a publication world that has gone forever. It, it will never come back. Now, you wrote a novel that came out a few years ago. Was it a nice break? Because you're oh. constantly mining your past and your family and your personal life to just be able to create something out of thin air. It was, it was fantastic to make things up and not worry about hurting anybody's feelings, uh, not worrying about any consequences, and just, you know, imagining a world. It was fun. It was so I think we have a few more minutes. We have five minutes. So um, for those of us, for those of you who have just joined us, you are listening to Radio Cherry Bomb. We are broadcasting here live with the Heritage Radio Network crew, and we are going to do the speed round for the last five minutes. We'll just throw out a few questions. Uh, Ruth, coffee or tea? Uh, coffee. How do you take it? Um, different ways, actually. I mean, sometimes black, sometimes with milk, sometimes with sugar, sometimes with cream. I'm not. I, I'm, I'm not all, orthodox all in my in all my coffee drinking. Ellen, uh, juice, <laughs> juice. I love juice. You don't drink coffee? No. Oh my god, my head be... my head would explode if I drink coffee. I was going to say you and coffee, you and caffeine might be a pretty dangerous. Yeah. I do like matcha tea though. I matcha matcha, you know the powder? That's good. I, I think like it's cuz you have a color thing. Yeah, I'm like, oh, green. I'll, to your I'm in. <laughs> desire for color. Mashama, coffee. How do you take it? Milk and um, half and half and sugar. All right. Sweet Ooh, milk s- and half and half. No, just half and half. Oh, okay. I was like, ooh, cool. I was going to say milk and cream, but half and half. All right, Mishama, sweet or salty? Ooh, both. Okay. Sweet and salty. At the same time? Uh-huh, yeah. Ellen? <laughs> Me too. I love, I love, like, salt in my whipped cream. Yeah. Definitely salty. I, I have very little interest in sh- sugar. Oh. Ruth, is there one thing you would never eat? Um, yeah, I would probably never eat a, you know, I mean, that, that monkey thing that they do. I mean, brains? It, it, brains. Yeah, I would really not want to eat um, something that was cruel. Other than that, I have eaten most things. I can imagine. Fish eyeballs. Okay. Nope. Michelle? Um, probably like brains or like 
bowl balls or something like that. Something like where there's a textural thing and it gets weird and squishy. Yeah, I circular it makes objects. Me wanna... Weird. Not eating. Oh, them. I love I love slimy, squishy oh, things. No, you do? No. Yeah, I do. I'm with you on the brains front. I can't do the brains yeah. thing. Yeah. Would you eat, have you eaten One fish thing? eyeballs? I have. And you yeah. like them? They're gelatinous. They're not slimy. No. Oh, uh, weird. But I, I but but. I mean, they're fine. I mean, they're not. It's not a lot of flavor. It's just kind of bouncy. One thing Whoa. that I have eaten that I just can't seem to enjoy is like a blood sausage. I just you can't enjoy that. I can't oh. wrap my. I can't. I just can't like go. I understand that. that, but I love blood sausage. If you were trapped on a desert island with one food celebrity, who would it be? I think I'm sitting right next to her. Ruth is in the house. <laughs> Ruth, Ruth, would you make a good Desert Island companion? Uh, probably. I hope so. <laughs> Just in terms of life skills. Um, well, you know, you wouldn't. I, I wouldn't be good at building the boat to get us away I'll, from I'll there. I'll build the boat for us, Ruth. But, Don't worry. But I can you handle us. Twitter. I'll handle Instagram. We've got I, all bases covered. I would feed us. <laughs> Ruth, who would you... You can't say Nancy Silverton. Who would you want to be stuck on a desert island with of all the food celebrities out there? Oh, my God. That's such a hard question. You can do um, it. First I've, one who comes to mind. Um, I'm racking my brains here, and I, I don't know. Um, well, you know, you said Nancy, and, you know, I was like... I, I, yeah, that would well. kind of be fun. That would be a good TV series. Oh, I would man. watch that. Nancy and to, Ruth on an island? Bra- Bravo reality show. Ruth and Nancy stuck on yeah. the island. Two lost girls. <laughs> <laughs> Mishama, how about you? Um, can they be dead? <laughs> can can they be a dead food celebrity? <laughs> that might be a little gruesome to I be mean, stuck on an be, island I mean, with a, a dead lot, person. I, so the first person that popped in my head, she's no longer living... Um, it would be Edna Lewis, I think, because she could, yeah. I, yeah. she can farm. She, you know. Well, you know what? I'm gonna ask you the next question, yeah. but you still have to answer the original question. Oh, I the next I... question is: If you could cook a meal for anybody, fictional, non-fictional, living, dead, who would it be? Would it be? Ed, would it be Edna Lewis? Um, yes, probably. It would be really intimidating, I think, <laughs> to cook a meal for her. I bet. Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay, but who would your live, okay, who would your live living celebrity Desert li- Island person living be? Living celebrity. Um, the second person that popped in my head would be um, Jonathan Waxman. I've oh. met him twice, and I met him, and he's just a really nice guy. He is, he is really, he can, really a nice guy. And I think that he'll take care of us. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> He is really a nice guy, but I've known him for 40 years. He's a really nice guy. I've known him for four. Take a zero off. Uh He's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've known him for maybe 40 minutes, but I think he's awesome. But I met him twice, and uh, yeah. That was an impactful 40 minutes <laughs> with, with Chef Jonathan Waxman of Barbudo. Well, thank you, everyone, who stopped by to listen to Radio Cherry Bomb live from the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. Thank you again to our sponsors, Springer Mountain Farms Chicken and Big Green Egg. Have a wonderful time here at the conference and enjoy Charleston.
This episode is brought to you by Big Green Egg, the world's largest producer of ceramic charcoal grills. In business since 1974, they've transformed ancient cooking vessels into modern-day masterpieces. Today, they sell seven sizes of the egg, as well as hundreds of accessories designed to make your cooking fun, entertaining, and delicious. Often copied, but never equaled, the Big Green Egg is the ultimate cooking experience. Learn more at biggreenegg.com. This episode is also brought to you by Springer Mountain Farms, over 300 family farmers raising birds in Georgia's Blue Ridge Mountains. Many of them are second and even third generation. They're committed to doing things the right way. Springer was one of the first poultry companies to forego the use of antibiotics, and they've embraced other humane practices too. In fact, they were the first poultry company to earn the American Humane Association seal of approval. Learn more at springermountainfarms.com.